Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project... Five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. second part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Boxer Rebellion which was originally aired as one episode on the 30th of September 2012 Welcome back to the Boxer Rebellion Last time we introduced you to China at the start of the 20th century It was a chaotic, divided and difficult place to live in and it was totally controlled by the will of one woman and her trusted advisors Empress Dowager Sir Xi, a tenacious, ambitious and long-lasting woman who was a dynasty unto herself. She believed, or had been convinced by spring 1900, that the best hope for China, to save it from foreign occupation and exploitation, lay in its harnessing of the powers and promises of the boxers, a mysterious organisation which decried foreign influence and committed its forces to dispel it. All of this, guys, comes to you as part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. Which, as you know, is the big, huge gift that has been given, on the understanding that because we are five years old, you are very much loved, so I decided to give this to you guys. You don't have to do anything, and you can just enjoy this at your leisure for the rest of your life, and I will not begrudge you for it. However, if you want to help this podcast grow further, if you want to ensure that we make more content, and I do this more often, and if you want yourself to have access to some pretty sweet goodies, such as pens, magnets, etc., then hey, do you know what you should do? Well, 
how about this, okay? Instead of boring you with a really, really long promotion, because we all know that's what's going to happen, I'm going to set a stopwatch now for 20 seconds. 20 seconds, okay? I'm going to try and do this for the rest of the remastered thing as well. If I can keep it under 20 seconds, I feel like it's not that bad. So every time I'm going to start this stopwatch in front of me, and let's see how we do. Okay, one, two, three, go. Okay, so if you'd like to go to wdfpodcast.com and click on the Patreon button there, you'll be brought to our Patreon site where you can support us. And the best way to support this podcast is also to tell people about it. Tweet about us, underscore, at wdfpodcast.com. Share the latest episode, tell people how crazy I am, and tell people that it's a great place to be. We just made it. 44 milliseconds over, but there you go. I think you can handle that on a regular basis. 20, 20 seconds? No, that's not that bad. It's better than me rambling for the three minutes I normally ramble. And it keeps it concise, because realistically, how much promotion do you really need, guys? I think you're well sick of it by now, but hey, thanks so much for your support so far. Thanks for getting the word out there. I mean, I got on Twitter for this. That's how committed I am. I, I obviously have no shame at all, and I have no principles, because I've literally gone against everything I said I would do. I said I wouldn't get Patreon, I got it. I said I wouldn't get Twitter, I got it. I'm not going to say anything else because I just won't end up doing it. But yeah, this is the second episode of the Boxed Rebellion. Thanks for joining us. Please forgive me as we now go to May 1900. Mercy will not be shown. Prisoners will not be taken. Just as a thousand years ago the Huns under Attila won a reputation of might that lives on in legends. So may the name of Germany and China, such that no Chinese will ever again dare so much as to look askance at a German. Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany bids farewell to the German contingent of the Eight Power Alliance, July 1900. By early May 1900, after weeks of passing decrees aimed at making the activities of the boxers easier to carry out, the court tried to pass another decree. This latest decree stated that the boxers were to become their own individual militia and a kind of army unto themselves. It made official what the likes of Sir Xi and others understood to be the de facto state of affairs in China already, but to many officials in China this proved a step too far. Many would make their Pacific voices heard around this time. Men such as Prince Qing, who were now the Prime Minister of the Imperial Cabinet, and Young Shikai, the new governor of the now thoroughly chaotic Shantung province. Both men would play a vital role in the months to come, and their contribution is often eclipsed by the so-called bad guys in this case. So for the sake of fairness, try and keep them in mind, as I'll be alluding to them again soon. With the attempts to bring the legislation of the boxers out into the open failing, the Chinese court tried a new tactic. Those that had been such emphatic original supporters of the boxers now doubled down in the spreading of their message, and by doing so they reinforced the tales regarding the power, both spiritual and practical, that the boxers held, and over the following days in May 1900 this had the effect of pulling the empress even closer to their cause. The resulting increase in tensions between foreigner and Chinese alike did not go unnoticed by the foreign dignitaries, as they appealed to the Chinese court to be allowed to land some foreign troops to protect their legations. Emmanuel Xu in his book The Rise of Modern China sets the scene when he writes, On the 28th of May 1900, the rise in anti-foreign sentiments alerted the foreign diplomats in Beijing to the precautionary measure of calling in the legation guards from the ships 
off Tientsin Harbour. First disapproving, then reluctantly assenting to the move, the Chinese government tried to limit the number of such guards to 30 per legation. However, the first detachment that arrived in Beijing on the 1st of June and on the 3rd consisted of 75 Russian, British and French, 50 Americans, 40 Italians and 25 Japanese. The court was now determined to pursue at least some kind of conclusion with the foreign nations, though it was naively hoped that having seen the resistance to their occupation and influence, the foreign powers would leave China to its own affairs. Though the boxers trumpeted war with the foreign powers on a daily basis, few in the Chinese court believed it would go that far, and they only tolerated the boxers' calls as a way to hopefully scare away the foreigners. But the representatives of Britain, Russia, France, Japan, Austria, Germany, America and Italy were not going to be scared away, they were just as determined to stay in China as the Chinese were to make them leave China. While the foreign troops had been landed though, the court had issued a new decree and this one was the most explicit of all. It stated quite plainly that the boxers, wherever they were found, were not to be harassed or arrested by any Chinese officials. The ambiguity of such a degree on the one hand, i.e. when it is or isn't okay to arrest a boxer, contrasted sharply with the clarity of the order on the other hand i.e. the Chinese court was openly admitting that the boxers possessed some good qualities, a position which put them ferociously at odds with the foreign powers stationed in Beijing. With the apparent encouragement coming from the Chinese court of all places, the boxers got more daring. They cut the railway between Beijing and Tianjin on the 3rd of June, isolating those foreign legations in the capital, causing the situation to spiral into a dangerous direction in the process. The British diplomat in the region called for Admiral Seymour, commander of the Chinese fleet, to aid them by landing an army that would protect the legation, where many of the foreign nationals had decided to retreat. An international force of 2,100 men was landed and left Tianjin by train on the morning of the 10th of June. Didn't take long for them to run into the boxers at a town called Langfang, once the boxers had blocked the track. This of course slowed the foreign troops down, but... Meanwhile, events were taking a turn for the worst in Beijing. A day after the troops had landed and got into difficulty, the Chancellor of the Japanese Legation, Sugiyama, was killed by the reactionary Muslim general, Tung Fu Xiang, who had thrown his lot in with the boxers. Emmanuel Xu described the scene when he wrote, Sugiyama was killed by the Muslim general Tung Fu Xiang, who earlier had boasted to the Empress that he possessed no ability other than killing foreigners. The war dogs had been unleashed and would now, uncontrolled, when ravening and slavering across northern China. Even by this late stage when it seemed clear where the Chinese court stood vis-a-vis -vis the boxers, the majority of the Chinese governors and generals in the north had been fighting a protracted war against the boxers, refusing to believe the reports that the empress approved of the boxers' violence, since they remembered her court's indifference to the movements the year before. But the situation in the Empress's court had changed dramatically since 1899. Now she was utterly convinced as to the boxers' powers, and those conservative ministers that had surrounded themselves with like-minded individuals began to actively encourage them. The boxers officially had now gained the support of the Chinese court, mostly due to the sizable influence of Sir Xi, but the rest of China and most of the northern provinces contained governors that were less than willing to risk their lives. The Chinese government had refused to accept blame for the death of the Japanese minister Sugiyama, 
choosing instead to blame his death on bandits. In support of this stance, the court issued another decree on the 13th of June stating that, since the embassies had been adequately protected by the legation guards in Beijing, there was no need for more foreign troops to be sent in. That same day, the German minister of the legation claimed to have spotted a boxer dressed in all his finery within the legation quarter. He was brutally murdered and when word spread of this, the boxers outside the legation became enraged. Already having established a significant presence the days before in Beijing, and unmolested of course by the court, the boxers threw themselves into the task of destroying everything that looked remotely foreign. Christians, churches, English or European language books, shops that sold foreign goods, any unfortunate westerners were all annihilated by a relentless wave of boxer vengeance. Almost a hundred years of oppression, frustration and shame exploded that day, and it only stopped when the boxers and their supporters reached the high walls of the legation quarter. By now, the British, Russian, French, Austrian, Italian, American, German and Japanese nationals had barricaded themselves behind the wall of the legation quarter, in what remained the only safe place for a foreigner to be in, the entire city. The expedition, which had run into difficulty along the railroad to Beijing, don't forget, had decided on the 16th of June to retreat back into Tianjin meaning that the soldiers in the region were now completely alone. On that day, the first of four imperial councils was called between the Chinese government with the aim of deciding on war or peace with the foreigners. It was on that day that one Chinese official, a director of the Court of Sacrificial Worship, which sounds like an interesting department in of itself, made the point that the boxers' supernatural abilities were completely false and pointed out the futility of opening hostilities against the foreign nations. The Empress was having none of it though, and she now perhaps realised that she'd come too far to go back now. She cut him short with the response, Perhaps their magic is not to be relied upon, but can we not rely on the hearts and minds of the people? Today China is extremely weak, we have only the people's hearts and minds to depend upon. If we cast them aside and lose the people's hearts, what can we use to sustain the country? The meeting was relatively inconclusive, although a decree was issued to recruit the young and strong into the army. By now the line between who was a boxer and who was a soldier was deliberately blurred, so as to merge the two bodies into a single and manageable force. While the foreign legations held on within their walls, the court called their second imperial council the next day on the 17th of June, which merely served as a warning to the delegations to leave or suffer the consequences. On the 18th of June the following day, the Third Council was equally uneventful, but the day after that, a report was sent to the court informing them of the situation in Tianjin and that the Teiku forts, where boxer forces had been first evicted by a small foreign force, and then they'd surrounded the fort and taken it, and then that fort was now under the siege by the same small army. From this, the Empress seemed to have decided that the war with the foreign powers had begun, and she called the fourth and final imperial council together on the 19th of June, in which she formally broke off diplomatic relations with the foreign powers, and events soon began to spiral out of control. The 19th of June was also the day in which the divisions in the Chinese grand strategy began to appear. Was this a rebellion to throw off the shackles of Western imperialism, or was it an act of martyrdom? At the same time, many cautious individuals warned against the attacking and killing of the foreign dignitaries, and it initially seemed as though the empress would heed their warnings. 
However, once the boxers had rampaged through Beijing, and once they had reached the walls of their oppressors, Sir Xi allowed the situation to escalate. When reports came back on the first three days' unofficial war on the 21st of June and seemed, in their ambiguity, to be surprisingly positive, Sir Xi could hold herself back no longer. She summoned the court that evening and formally declared war on what had now become the Eight Nation Alliance, saying, Now they have started the aggression and the extinction of our nation is imminent. If we just fold our arms and yield to them, I would have no face to see our ancestors after death. If we must perish, why not fight to the death? These were the words of the Empress to the Grand Council that day. Millions of Chinese, she believed, would come to the aid of their beloved country and expel the foreign nations once and for all. As an interesting anecdote and to parallel the situation which went down in China in 1900, pays to examine other examples of movements like the boxers in occupied countries to see what we can learn from them. Case in point, the ghost dance movement. This was established by American Indians on the other side of the world, and was no doubt completely out of the orbit of the boxers, but like the boxers it represented a desperate attempt by the Indians to claw back their lives from the Western white influence. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The practices of this movement included as Larry Clinton Thompson in his book, William Scott Ament and the Boxer Rebellion, noted, Incantations to the gods and predictions that white settlers would be swept away, that the buffalo herds would return, and that the true believers would be immune to bullets. The massacre of their force at the Battle of Wounded Knee in 1890 destroyed the Indian soldier's spirit, just as Western arms would destroy the Chinese soldier's spirit in 1900. People on opposite sides of the world, unaware of each other, reacted in similar ways to a situation in which white invaders threatened their culture and economy. The American Indians' ghost dance movement, just like the boxers, couldn't stop bullets and they possessed no supernatural powers. What they did provide, though, was an example of the lengths that the individual will go to when all they hold dear seems to be in line for replacement 
and how the white man's lesson, though he never seemed to learn it, would reappear in an attempt to educate him again and again, no matter their location, language or technology. When the legations are taken, the barbarians will have no roots. The country will then have peace. These were the words of the Grand Secretary and a major influence on Sir Xi's decisions, which would become crucial over the coming months. The unity which was professed by the Chinese court never materialised once it was discovered that war had been declared. Southern China, for instance, they barely factored into the coming war, and the court seemed oblivious to the extent that it had alienated the less anti-foreign people in China who made up the majority in the South. Those governors who received word of the declaration of war in the southern provinces would ignore completely the Empress's calls for contribution to the war, and many didn't believe in the cause of the boxers either, the anti-foreign sentiments of the court or the authority of the Empress, full stop, and would later claim to be acting in the interests of the Emperor, Wang Shu, who had been made practically irrelevant by the Empress's monopoly on power. This raises an issue which I aim to cover later, but will at least briefly mention it here. The name of this conflict, the Boxer Rebellion, is highly misleading, and I would argue completely wrong. The first part, Boxer, is of course correct, but as we'll see, it was more a war than a rebellion, as the term rebellion implies that the Boxers wanted to overthrow the dynasty when they wanted no such thing. For the sake of clarity though, I'm not going to start suddenly calling this a new name and be really awkward about it, just remember that this rebellion was not a rebellion. As soon as the Empress put her support behind it and declared war on the foreign powers, it essentially became a war, a boxer's war, or even a northern China against western and other foreign influences war. And it was almost entirely linked, by the way, to northern China as well. The war would focus on the siege of the legation quarter where most of the action happens. The one thing that the legation quarter had going for it was its high walls and experienced soldiers. In time the place became crowned with 3,000 Chinese Christians, as well as about 1,000 foreign soldiers and civilians, including diplomats and women. And children. Emmanuel Xu explains the reasoning behind the besieging of the legation when before the Empress had cautiously advised against such moves. He said, They saw the destruction of the legations as a way to vent their wrath on the barbarians, to rid the capital of the foreign menace, to kill evidence of the court's sponsorship of the boxers, and to stimulate general patriotism among the people. The legations were thoroughly under siege during this time, and the boxers' presence began to evoke a sense of dread within the civilians and soldiers alike, who all fought desperately, some of them hopelessly, to repel the Chinese invaders. On the 22nd and 23rd of June, the boxers set fire to the outskirts of the legation, and the fire spread to many important buildings, including the Hanlin Academy, whose destruction is still a source of debate to this day. The Chinese Christians did much of the labour at this time because they strengthened the walls and constructed barricades within the legation in the fear that the boxers would pour over the walls. But still no direct attack on the positions was launched and the legations were in fact actively supported by Yun Lo, who was commander-in-chief of the Chinese Imperial Army for the region of Paiyang, which included the provinces of Liaoning, Shandong and the coastal areas of Zili in the northeast of China. This fact is often forgotten, but in fact Yong Li supplied key areas like the gutted Northern Cathedral, located in Beijing, where 45 soldiers and thousands of Christians held out desperately behind large barricaded gates. 
Young Lu was eventually forced to fall in with the other generals and recruit boxers into his army, but so against the movement was Young Lu that he put on a fake act of compliance, and he fired loud but empty guns, and withheld the newer and more powerful guns from use. His force was of course meant to contribute to the siege, so its complete failure to do so would obviously have adversely affected the direction of the war effort for the boxers. Certainly those on the inside were spared the almost certain executions that would have followed had the boxers been able to get into the legation quarter. On the 30th of June, German troops were forced off the Tartar Wall, as it was called, by incessant boxer fire. The boxers had released the inmates from their prisons and had taken the best weapons for themselves, which of course made them a swollen and formidable armed force. The removal of the Germans off the wall put the legations in some danger, as this wall was the highest and strongest protection they could utilise. On the 2nd of July then, British, American and Russian soldiers launched a daring midnight raid against the boxers. In an example of their flagrant disregard for their own safety, the foreign soldiers left the safety of the legation and attacked the boxer defences camped directly in front of the Tartar Wall. It was almost a sure thing that the next day the boxers would have utilised their tactical advantage and scaled the Tartar Wall in large numbers. They would have overwhelmed the legation and begun the massacre. As a resident captain at the time explained, it would have been easy by a strong swift movement on the part of the numerous Chinese troops to have annihilated the whole body of foreigners in an hour. The boxers were pushed back by the daring raid though, and the Tartar Wall was secured for the remainder of the siege. Sniper fire did take its toll though, and on the 13th of July, which came to be known by Sir Claude MacDonald, who was there at the time, as the most harassing day of the siege, saw the Italians and Japanese pushed back from their positions to their last defensive line, while the Chinese detonated a mine under the French legation, a move which pushed the French and Austrians out. Low on food and ammunition, the situation began to look hopeless for the foreigners, until American minister Edwin Conger established contact with the Chinese on the 17th of July. Upon doing so, he was able to get the Chinese to agree to an armistice within Beijing, and the legation was given a chance to regroup, by now having lost 40% of their soldiers to the enemy, disease or their wounds. The rebellion was by no means over, in fact the most crucial part of it was just beginning. On the 14th of July, foreign troops had taken Tianjin and were threatening to move on Beijing. The reality was that the Eight Nation Alliance would need more time to collect their forces together before marching on the capital, but those in command of the Boxer armies didn't know that yet. And at the time, the 13 southern governors in China urged the court to act now and suppress the Boxers, sending a letter of apology to the Germans before it was too late as well. For a few moments in her hesitation, it seemed as though the Empress had softened. Numerous diplomats were asked into China and a sort of diplomatic camp was established in Tianjin. The Chinese foreign ministry agreed to protect these diplomats for the duration of their stay and they also urged those within the legation quarter in Beijing to come out and go to Tianjin. But those in the legation quarter stayed where they were, with one of its residents asking, Why, if the Chinese government cannot ensure the protection of the foreign envoys in Beijing, do they feel confident in their power to do so outside the city, on the way to Tianjin? It was a good question, but the legation were sent signs of Chinese cooperation over the following days. For example, cartloads of supplies were sent to relieve their nagging food shortages on the 20th and 26th of July, while hostilities against the legation were called off on the 14th and 26th of that month as well. 
This period of goodwill ended with the arrival of Li Ping Heng, though, in Beijing on the 26th, as he began to impress upon the court the need to resume the war so as to negotiate better post-war terms. Pro-peace officials were executed, including the director of the court of sacrificial worship that we met earlier, who had dared to speak out against the pro-boxer policies of the now-doomed court. He, along with four other officials, were beheaded and the court continued to press the war, even as the Eight-Nation Alliance was readying for an attack on Beijing. On the 4th of August, 1900, the international force of 18,000 men set out from Tianjin and began to cut a swathe through the boxer forces in their way. So fast was their advance that the reactionary official, Li Pingheng, committed suicide rather than face the now deafening music. On the 14th of August, the foreign forces had smashed through Beijing's defences and now relieved the legations under siege there. They missed the court though. The empress and her court followers fled with her in disguise to Xi'an in the west. The emperor Wang Shu argued for the court to stay and when it became clear that Xi was leaving, he insisted he would not follow. So she ordered his consort Chen be thrown down a well and the emperor dragged with her if necessary. She was not about to allow him to re-establish his own court in Beijing backed by the Eight Nation Alliance. Once in position in Xi'an, Peace moves were sent out during August and finally made a breakthrough on the 18th of September, when the Chinese plenipotentiary agreed to travel to Beijing under armed Russian guard. Yes, that's right, Russian guard. That point will become important later. Then a peace settlement, consisting of 12 articles, was agreed to by the 24th of December, 1900, beginning the long political post-war processes and formally ending the Boxer Rebellion. It has to be emphasised that foreign soldiers acted horrendously once they reached Beijing. Atrocities were bookended by mass suicides, and common scenes included the looting and massacres of individuals believed to be boxers. A foreign journalist, George Lynch, perhaps put it best when he said, There are things I must not write that may not be printed in England, which would seem to show that the Western civilization of ours is merely a veneer over savagery. All nations accused the other of being the worst culprit, while none seemed capable of keeping their soldiers on a leash. A semblance of order wouldn't return to the city for another month at least, and in the meantime, no Chinese citizen was safe from the raping, murdering, looting, and often drunk eight-nation soldier. The political agitating began almost as soon as the peace had been arranged, even before in Russia's case, as the moves made by her diplomats to negotiate an armed guard for the Chinese plenipotentiary was undoubtedly politically motivated. Russia was looking to expand her influence in the east, starting with Manchuria. They'd moved a whopping 200,000 troops there in July, much to the chagrin of Britain, who by this stage viewed Russia as the greatest threat to her empire. Because of this, Britain supported Germany's attempts to wring harsh concessions from China in the peace deal, in the hope that Germany would help her stop Russian expansion. Russian expansion became a cause for concern in Japan as well, as Manchuria, and indeed the Chinese lands, were meant to be places where Japan could expand. She joined in London and Berlin's calls for St. Petersburg to stop with their efforts to make a separate peace with China. Eventually, Russia backed down under this pressure, and by March 23rd, 1901, 
It was understood that the court in Beijing had rejected the separate Russian treaty, which would have meant that Manchuria fell under its control. Despite the rejection of this sweet offer, on Russia's behalf anyway, the Russians rolled out some lame excuse as to why they couldn't remove their 200,000 soldiers from Manchuria at this moment, on the 7th of April 1901, and an uneasy acceptance of Russia's official, unofficial hegemony over Manchuria crept in. The Russians claimed that they planned on leaving, and they signed a treaty with the depressed China on the 4th of April 1902, promising to leave in three stages of six-month intervals. No one seemed to question the logistics of how, if Russia could march 200,000 men there so quickly, they couldn't simply march them back out again in the same speed. But by this time, Japan had formalised its alliance with Britain, and the seeds for the Russo-Japanese War had been sown. By 1904, in a scene all too familiar to us, the balance of power in Asia would be destroyed again by Japan, as the implications of the Boxer Rebellion resounded across the world. Emmanuel Xu concluded on the Boxer Rebellion when he said, In retrospect, it becomes apparent that the Boxer movement was propelled by the combined forces of the reactionary Manchu court, the diehard conservative officials and gentry, and the ignorant and superstitious people. It was a foolish and unreasoned outburst of emotion and anger against foreign imperialism, yet one cannot overlook the patriotic element within it. Marxist historians today consider the Boxer movement a primitive form of a patriotic peasant uprising, with the right motive but the wrong methods. The Boxer Rebellion was one of the last stops before the European powers began to focus back in on themselves. But what of the Empress's court? What happened to Sir Xi? Well, by 1911, the imperial dynasty would be overthrown as the Chinese state sank into a depressed and frustrated revolution, brought on, in fact, by crippling war indemnities and restrictions. Not wanting to alienate the state, the Eight-Nation Alliance agreed to maintain Sir Xi's position in court. Yes, this meant that perhaps the guiltiest culprit of all got off scot-free. It was all in the name of strategy, though, as Sir Xi's guiding hand in the war was forgiven in exchange for her cooperation in the post-war settlements. She would die in 1908. Incidentally, the day after the death of her nephew, Wang Shu, who had himself died under mysterious circumstances. So that's the end of the Boxer Rebellion Remastered series. Guys, I hope you've enjoyed it. My name is Zach. You've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered, obviously. If you want to find out different... Well, no, I'm not bothered. Thanks for listening, guys. Okay, have a great day, and I'll be seeing you soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.